So I hope I got you thinking about at Christmas time, what do you think are the least most important things at Christmas? Got any idea? I mean, you know, there's a lot of things about Christmas that we take as important, some things less. Let me give you one, see if I can start you out. Um, growing up, uh, this was something I remember and it has continued, but I thought was one of the least important things about Christmas was fruitcake. So, okay, there's some people who say yes. Okay, I, I'm with you. How many people like fruitcake? Oh, come on, you can confess it if you, you know, it's, I think it's a generational thing. I remember growing up, we always had fruitcakes around and uh, at the church, we used to have people who made fruitcakes and brought them by. I don't know that we have any more. I'm sure after mentioning this, we will. Um, and we had some people who would even buy fruitcakes from some famous places and have them uh, shipped to the church and that was always a lot of fun. Uh, but I remember growing up, the fruitcakes that were around um, in the house and it seemed like the older generation, my grandmother and all that, it seemed like they really liked them. It, it probably does have to do with the time that they grew up and how much they had or how much they didn't have, right? Um, I will tell you that as, as kids, the one thing we really did like about fruitcakes was if you wrap them in, a, in aluminum foil and you wrap them really good and really tight, you can take them outside and play football with them. I mean, they work, <clears throat> they work really good. They're not as good to kick, but they're really good to you know, hand off and to throw and things like that. And, and one added benefit uh, that was to uh, our family is when you bring it back in, you sneak it in and you put it back in the pantry, it's actually a little softer. So you know, it might be better that it's been out there into a football game. Okay, if you like fruitcake, uh, you know, I apologize. Uh, how, how about this one? Um, my grandmother, one of the traditions that we had was that you could open a present early, one present early. So I, I don't know if you had that tradition or whatever it was, it came about later for us, but the one thing I didn't wanna do was to spoil opening presents on Christmas day. So I intentionally would pick my Aunt Libba's gift that she gave to him. is my aunt named Elizabeth. She never had any kids, she was a school teacher. Wonderful lady, loved her nieces and nephews, but she kind of grew up again in that era when gifts uh, needed to be practical because they didn't have a lot, you know, when, when she came up. So I, I'd always pick her gift to open early because I knew that it would be socks. It was always socks, very practical. She knew that, you know, nieces and nephew need socks and, you know, it, you know, so it was one of those things. And then she started figuring out, especially for the boys, that the socks weren't that exciting to the boys. So she, she switched later and she started giving gloves. And I thought, yes, because now I could put on gloves and pretend, you know, that I was Sir Lancelot or, you know, Spider-Man or Batman. I, you know, there are a lot of things you can do with gloves. I mean, for a little boy, they, they, were, just, they were just perfect for the imagination. But um, her brother worked for a large department store and I'm sure that she got the gloves, you know, kind of wholesale or in a, a bundle. And one year, it kind of messed up. She, she I opened it up, she sent me the gloves, I opened it up, and they were both left-handed. <laughs> I'm like, so typical of what a little boy do, I, I put it on anyway. I figured I'd get my hand in there, you know, because I wasn't gonna miss out on the fun of playing with the, uh, the gloves. And uh, so, you know, I still remember those things. Uh, here's one of the things I think that if you look at the, story of Christmas that you might look at and say, maybe not quite as important. And that is, oh, little town of what? Yeah, a little town of Bethlehem. In fact, I mentioned this at the first service, 
I cannot think of another song written about Bethlehem at Christmas, you know, a Christmas song, except for a little time Bethlehem. You might remember one. And then I remembered as I was working on it, uh, the guy that I uh, worked uh, with when I was down in Houston, he was the minister of music there, and he wrote a song that was performed in the singing Christmas tree. You remember those? They have a Christmas tree and there'd be people stacked all up in them, you know, and they would do the Christmas program that way. And he wrote a song called Bethlehem Tiny Town. And his wife, it was Gary Moore, and his wife Christy would sing that song uh, from the tree. And I, I, I still remember it. I mean, I love music and I always remember things. like It would go, Bethlehem Tiny Town. That's the place where God came down. I remember that song just because uh, I thought, yeah, Bethlehem was really, really special and, and, and she would sing it. And if you wanna to listen to it, you can go on, because I did that this morning, you can go on YouTube and you can type in a Bethlehem tiny town and it's not there. But just so, uh, so you have to call Gary Moore and see if he can give you a copy of it or something like that. Um, you know, it's just, Bethlehem is one of those places, it's kinda of like, really, that's it? In fact, here's my question. Do you think that the people in the land 2,000 years ago in Jesus' day, do you think that they thought Bethlehem was a big deal, that it was important? What do you think? You think they thought it was important? I, I agree, I don't think they did. I think that um, Jerusalem was important. There were some large cities uh, in the area that were important. You know, Rome was important. You go down to Alexandria over in Egypt. Was important. I mean, there are a lot of places that you could say, this is an important place. But I think even in Israel's day, they looked at Bethlehem as the little tiny town. It's about five, six miles south of Jerusalem. So I do my air maps. You know, so if you've got the Mediterranean Sea here, got the land of Israel, you've got the River Jordan, the Galilee, Sea of Galilee is up here, then the Dead Sea is down here. So Jerusalem is, is right across from the top of the Dead Sea. And you go about five or six miles south and you'll come to Bethlehem. This land is called Judah, it's where the tribes, you know, when they divide out the land, Judah got this land. But in Jesus' day, it's called Judea because that's what the Romans designated as one of their promises. And the, and the Romans inherited it from the Greeks when they conquered the Greeks, and the Greeks inherited it from the Persians when they conquered the. And so, you know, they all owned and controlled this land, which was an important piece of land because it was the crossroads between this, this continent of Africa and all the trade there and the continent of Asia up uh, above it. And this is the way you had to go if you wanted to get either way, you know, going so important place, but just five or six miles south of Jerusalem, little town known for poor shepherds, taking care of sheep, you know, that's what, that's what uh, Bethlehem was. I was listening to a guy who was trying to make a case for uh, that that's not the Bethlehem that Jesus was born in. And uh, there's another Bethlehem, it, it, not south of Jerusalem. If you go back up north and over near the Mediterranean Sea, there is a Bethlehem of Galilee. The only problem with his, um, his uh, assumption or him trying to make a case for this is when Bethlehem is referred to, uh, the Bethlehem of, of Galilee is referred to, but every time that they refer to this Bethlehem and including Jesus, it's called Bethlehem of Judea or in the Old Testament, Bethlehem of Judah. It's very specific that they say this is what it is. One of the other names for it is uh, the name uh, Ephrath 
or Ephrathah. And it just means, that's just a little bit different name, means fruitful. And Bethlehem uh, is a name that comes from the idea of the house of bread, the place where there were supplies there or where our needs were met. And so it's a really important place, but it's a really tiny place. It's an insignificant place um, as far as their day was concerned. It's first mentioned in Genesis, um, and it's mentioned because uh, Jacob had this wife named Rachel that he loved. He had more than one wife. But Rachel was the one that he was really in love with. And uh, Rachel has two children. Uh, the first one, very famous, a guy named Joseph. You remember his story as he goes to Egypt. And the second one, you remember his, his name? His name was what? Benjamin. Benjamin was the second one. And she's on her way. She's traveling when Benjamin is born. And she's near uh, Bethlehem when he's born. And, and this is the place it says that she had great uh, pains and, and, and a great struggle, and in this place, she dies. She's buried there in Bethlehem, or Ephrath is what it's uh, called in Genesis, and then there's a footnote that says, actually from their text, that this is also uh, Bethlehem. She dies there. She buries him. Uh, she named him a different name. She named him meaning the son of my sorrow uh, as she dies, but uh, Jacob, because he loved Rachel, and uh, he loved this son, Benjamin. I mean, it became his favorite after Joseph. Um, he, he named him differently because of how he felt and the memories that he had. And this small place, and, ben, and uh, Jacob always revered Bethlehem uh, because of, of this. So it's, it's an important place um, for a lot of reasons, but in so many ways, an unimportant uh, place also. So here's what I wanna read for you. This is out of Luke chapter number two, the Christmas story. And um, it's mentioned here, mentioned several times, and this is what it says, beginning in verse number one. At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, so this is Augustus Caesar, who ruled over the empire at this time, and of course, then uh, owned this uh, area also, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman empire. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. Um, and because Joseph was a descendant of King David, so we know something about Joseph's lineage, he is in the line of King David, he had to go to where? Bethlehem, but not just Bethlehem, but Bethlehem where? In Judea, yes, because Bethlehem in Judea was the place that actually David himself grew up and David was born. He says he traveled to the village of Nazareth and Galilee or from there, about just about 60 miles, 50, 60 miles down south, and he took Mary, his fiance, and she was now what? She's obviously gonna have a child. <laughs> she's, she's engaged to him. They're not fully married yet as, as far as the ceremonies and, and the consummation was concerned, but she's obviously um, with a child. Now, it says that, that uh, he was a descendant of David, which is why he had to go down here. So you may not know this about King David, but um, at the time when, when uh, Israel was struggling to find identity and they, the people wanted a king, they appoint Saul as king and Saul doesn't work out because he doesn't do what God asked him to do. And so God, God comes to the guy named Samuel, who's the prophet, and he says, we're gonna, we're gonna pick a different king. And uh, so he has to go through all the tribes, there are 12 tribes, he goes through the territory, ends up down in Judah. So the new king is gonna come from the land of Judah, from the people of Judah, and he ends up in a place named Bethlehem. And there in Bethlehem, he goes to a man named Jesse. 
And he says, one of your sons is going to be the new king. And of course it was David. So David was part of the family of Jesse who lived in Bethlehem. David was born in Bethlehem. If you read in the Bible and every time you see the city of David, what you'll notice is it's always referring to Jerusalem, not Bethlehem. The reason is because David conquers Jerusalem. Um, He took it from the Jebusites and made it his own city and it later became the capital. Jerusalem was powerful, it was big, it was strategic. And so it's always referred to as the city of David. But in this case, when you're talking about the city of David, the birthplace of David, it's not Jerusalem. It's five or six miles down south, a little town, a small place called Bethlehem. And this is where uh, David himself was born. I think it's very significant that, um, that he was born there. And so I thought I'd put this other story in your uh, outline um, to help you understand just how important this little town was because during the time of the judges, so the time of the judges was before uh, David's time and the time of the judges comes uh, after they, Israel has gone into the land. Um, Joshua goes and he conquers the land and then Israel is ruled by all of these judges. And during that time, the book of Ruth comes into play. If you look in the Old Testament, it's a great book, great story. It comes after uh, Joshua and Judges and before you get to the first and second Samuel and first and second Kings and all those. And this is the story of a lady who lived in Bethlehem with her husband, um, uh, Abimelech, and um, he, he and, and his wife lived there. They have two sons, they're Jewish, and there's a famine in the land. And so they have to go across the Jordan into the land of the Moabites in order to survive because of the famine in Bethlehem. They take their sons, they go over into this land, um, and then while they're in this land, he dies, the husband dies. And then not long after that, the sons find wives, they marry Moabite women, and um, then they die. So it's just Naomi, who is the wife, and the two uh, daughters who are both Moabites. They're not even Jewish that, who is with her. And Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem, cross the Jordan, go back on the other side. She's gonna go back to her homeland. So she tells her daughter, she said, listen, it's not right that you have to go through what I've gone through. Um, you're gonna see a lot about how she feels about uh, her life and how God has uh, treated her in, her in her mind at the time. She said, so you stay here you find other husbands, you prosper, you find a good life. One of the, the uh, daughter-in-laws was named Oprah. She later started a network and she did really good in that land. Okay, Orpa was her name, but it's close, so that's how I always remember her. And, uh, but the other one is named Ruth, and that's where the, the book gets its name. And Ruth has a different response to Naomi. She says, oh no, I'm not leaving you. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? She decides, I'm going with you. In fact, look, this is the part I put in your outline. Here's in chapter number one, beginning with verse 16. He says this, but Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, what? I will, yeah. Your people will be, what? And your God will be, yes. Wherever you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. It's a pretty famous passage. In fact, I always remember it growing up that it was the the passage that was sung. There was a song to this. 
Wherever you go, I will go. Okay, you remember old weddings, okay. And I always thought it was, it was unusual when I began to read the Bible. It's actually not about marriage, right? This is about a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. And how did this get into marriage? I think it's just a sentiment of how devoted that she was, that it, that it kind of got placed in there. And you see this incredible devotion of Ruth to Naomi. And she goes with her back into the land that was not her land. And it says there in verse number 19, so the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to, oh, here it is, they came to what? Bethlehem, that's where Naomi was from. Look at the response. The entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi, the women asked. Yeah, she was apparently pretty well known and very popular among the women in uh, Bethlehem. But here's her response. Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has made uh, my life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. That's an important story. Because I know you think, well, it's, it's, it's kind of a bitter story. I mean, look at Naomi's life. But the point of the story is Ruth's devotion to Naomi, to go with her. And if you know the story, if you've read the book of Ruth, it's a pretty amazing book because uh, they have no source of income. It's just two women there. And so Ruth has to go to the fields. And after they would cut the fields, uh, by Jewish law, you had to allow those who had little income to come and they would gather up grain that was left. It was dropped and didn't, didn't uh, get picked up by the harvesters. And she is there, and there she meets uh, a man who's called her kinsman redeemer. In other words, he is gonna rescue her from this situation. He falls in love for her. Does anybody remember this guy's name? Boaz, yes. His name is Boaz. And he falls in love with Ruth. And he decides to care for Ruth. He's, he's Jewish, just like Naomi. He knows Ruth is a Moabite woman, but he has decided to be her rescuer. And the story is just absolutely wonderful if you wanna go and read it. But here's the point that, that I want you to pick up um, in this story. In fact, I should have put this in your outline, but I didn't. But Ruth actually, because of this relationship, plays an important part in the birth of Jesus in the line of who Jesus was. This is Matthew Uh, Chapter number one, very first chapter of Matthew, verse five and six, if you wanna write that down, Matthew one, five and six, and this is what it, it says. It's the lineage of Jesus that Matthew records, and he says this, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Ruth. Now, uh, I'm sorry, by uh, Rahab. Now, Rahab is, is a woman that you will read about when you go back to Joshua. And Joshua, as he's looking at Jericho and taking it, Rahab is a woman who is um, a, a head of a, a house of prostitutes, but she is a believer in God. She believes that God is going to, the God of the Hebrews is going to conquer the city. She has faith, protects the spies, and she becomes a part of the Hebrew nation. She leaves Jericho and goes to Jerusalem. She marries, and she is the the wife who bears this 
this uh, son, Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. He has a son by who? By Ruth. Yeah, again, a foreigner. She was a Moabite, just like uh, Rahab was a foreigner also. And Obed was the father of, oh, here he comes again, father of who? Jesse. And Jesse lives down in Bethlehem, right? Which is where she is. And Jesse becomes the father, it says, of King David. Yeah. The point is God uses these two women in, in, in the life of, uh, in the line of Jesus coming and they weren't even Jewish. They were foreigners. But because of their faith, because of their, their belief in God and, and their trust, they become instruments in God's hand, including, including Ruth. And it's all tied around this little place, this little town called Bethlehem. I think in your life, if you're gonna have a relationship with God, a real relationship with God, I think one of the struggles is if you just look for the big bright lights and the big things and the, and the loud music and all the celebrations that we do, which are wonderful. Listen, we do them for a reason. You'll miss something. Because in those small moments, in those small places, is where God works out the details that are vital for what you and I are really looking for, what we really need. And if you, if you think about it, and I know people who, who have a real relationship with Jesus, they, they have learned how to wait on God in those places, wait for when God himself decides to show up and do what he's going to do. And that's what makes the relationship, and especially in those places, so rich in their lives. When I was a, a teenager myself, so I was, I was about 15, 16 years old, um, went to a Presbyterian church, born and raised in Presbyterian church. And um, so uh, I had some friends that went to a group called the Coffee House. It was run by a couple. They were Southern Baptists. They would never tell you where they went to church. They just ran this group that met on Thursday and Friday nights. And uh, so as they did this, I, I got involved, became a believer, uh, began to to go there and celebrate and worship with them. I, I, I would play the guitar, learned how to sing. Uh, several of my friends from there went off to Nashville and they, they cut record contracts. I was never that good. So I had to go a different route. And uh, it was just a, a special time in the middle of a little bitty town in South Carolina where this couple just believed in it. Incidentally, this couple, um, Terry and Greer Ballinger, never had kids. And so they did the same thing. They just poured their life into these high school and college students in the area for about 10 or 12 years and made an enormous impact upon our lives. And one of the things I remember is at some point, uh, the Southern Baptists got, got uh, contracted or pulled to do what were called lay witness missions for the Methodist church. And so we went off to, and they, they recruited us, including a Presbyterian boy, to go off to a Methodist church in Georgia, the state next door, to this little bitty church and, and, and work and, and try to share our faith and all. And it was there that God made a big impact in my life. It happened one night. Uh, I don't know where I was supposed to be. Uh, I'm sure I wasn't where I was supposed to be. And at that age, you know, nowadays, someone would have been arrested if that were true. But, you know, in those days, you know, you could do this. And I, I just, just somewhere, and I wandered into a little church at night. I remember it was closed, it was locked, but one of the doors opened. Later, I asked him, I told him, I said, I went by that church. And he said, no, no, it'd be locked at night. And I said, well, you know, one of the doors was unlocked or didn't, you know, connect all the way. So I went into this little church alone by myself. 
And there I, I was praying and, and God did business with me, which is usually where God does business with you. It's in the little uh, secluded, isolated times in your life, places where you just don't know that God will show up, but he has, he has plans. And I still remember being there in front of the altar, in front of the church, sitting on the floor and praying and talking with God. And I remember writing a note and something of the note said, you know, I, 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 I wanna give you my life, I wanna follow you. And I took my wallet out and I had $19. I still remember that. It's all the money I had, cash money I had. I took $19 out of my wallet. I put it in the offering plate with the note and I said, everything I have, it's yours. And it was a pivotal moment for me, changing you know, the, the whole direction you know, of my life uh, because of what God did in my heart in that time and that place. No, no big bands, no music, n- never saw anything, never heard an audible voice or anything like that, but God was speaking to what? Yeah, and, and that's how God works in our lives. In fact, I would tell you that without those times, the big moments don't really matter because those are more pivotal moments and more important moments when God meets with us and he touches our heart. And I think that that's why Christmas is the way it is. And why when Jesus is born, Jesus is not born in Jerusalem or in Rome or in Alexandria. No, Jesus is born in this tiny little sleepy town with shepherds that that kept sheep around it um, south of Jerusalem. It's there that God sends his son so that we would know in those times, in those places, God chooses. He picks those times and places many times to come and to uh, meet with us. I put a quote on the backside of your outline. It'll pop up on the screen. This is from a a guy named uh, Bill Alston who wrote, I think he wrote this 60 years ago. It's called Topical History of Christianity. And I like this paragraph that he put uh, in his book. He said, the knowledge of God, listen to this, knowledge of God must be given to us by who? God himself. Yeah, it has to be. We don't have the ability to figure God out or measure God or somehow find God um, as humanity. It has to come from God himself. He says, for God is transcendent. That means God is bigger than the things that we see, touch, and that that we think are important. He's he's bigger than those things, and it it is not accessible to us in the categories, he's very educated, this guy, the categories at our disposal. Right, the way we normally find things, measure things, or decide what's important. He said, revelation cannot be procured, another one of those educated words, from God by any technique, but it is to be received only by, I love this, only, it's received only by what? By waiting on God, yeah. It's the only way you get it. You have to wait on God. That means God's timing, God's place, God's decision to touch our hearts, to speak into our lives, to do something that only God himself can do. And honestly, we wouldn't want it any other way because that's what we're looking for, is for God to do something uh, meaningful uh, inside of us. So let me take you to uh, 
uh, Matthew's gospel. This is, uh, we've been looking at Luke's, but Matthew tells part of the story and a real important part where there's some wise men, these are magi, who come from it, probably east of Persia. So uh, most, most of those who study uh, archeology span and I would say probably about an 800 mile journey to get to Jerusalem. And these magi, these wise men, were men who studied the stars and uh, so they were kind of astronomers, astrologers, uh, educated, very highly educated. And they looked into the stars to see what the heavens were declaring that was happening or would happen on the earth. And they find this star that they believe this star signifies the birth of a king of all places in Israel. A birth of a king in Israel. Now, are they influenced by the earlier writings of Daniel at one point, it could be. You know, we don't really know a lot about these three, and they weren't three, these wise men or these magi. We just, we deduce certain things from the story, but we really don't know a lot about them except when they come into the city, here's what we do know. Boy, it was quite a stir. So these were important, powerful people who spent months traveling to come to, and naturally they came to Jerusalem to find this child, this new king, this, this baby who was born to be the legitimate king of Israel themselves. And when they arrived with all their entourage, they probably had some sort of soldiers or people with them to protect them as well as, as those who would care for their needs because they would have been uh, very wealthy. Here's what it says. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this as was everyone in Jerusalem. Yeah, because when Herod was disturbed, everyone was disturbed. Because Herod was the king of the area, but Herod had no legitimate claim on being king in this area. He wasn't even Jewish. Herod married into the Jewish dynasty in order to try to gain power. Now, Herod is aggressive, he is smart. Herod, Herod does things, comes up with things that, he, he may be one of the greatest builders ever to live on the earth. He built the temple itself that is there in Jerusalem, which is magnificent. It was one of the wonders of the world in order to appease the Jewish people and to try to win their support. And it never worked because the Jewish people hated Herod and uh, they didn't like him there at all. So this is in verse four. He called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of religious laws and he asked, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Well, here's the interesting thing. They know the location because they go and they quote um, from the prophet um, uh, Micah and they say, Micah has actually said that in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. O you and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not, listen to this, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. And I put in your outline, I run there, why? Why would you say they're not least? Of course they're least. They're small, they're insignificant. I mean, at this time in Jesus' day, Bethlehem would have you know, less than 1,000 people that lived in the city and the surrounding area there. It, it, was, it was nothing important. He says, no, you're not least, and here's why. For a ruler will come for you who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. So yes, location-wise, as far as the town was concerned, the commerce was concerned, but not insignificant because here is where the ruler that God had chosen would be born, would be birthed. You ever think about why would God choose Bethlehem? Why wouldn't he choose Jerusalem? 
I mean, it, it, it seems like, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be more fitting? Unless you understood how God works, unless you see how God works and what God's plans are and what God's designs are. Because like I said, you even go and you look at the lineage of Jesus and you're like, wait a minute, how did that person get in there? Well, you have to remember what God does and what God's plans are to reach the hearts of people. Clearly in here, because of these magi, and clearly if you look at the lineage, not just the Jewish people. God's plan was that this Messiah would be the one who would reach all people of all nations. A whole different plan than they thought of in the land, than the Jewish people thought of in the land, and the religious leaders thought. And, and because of this, here's what happens. Verse seven, Herod calls a private meeting of the wise men. He learned from them the time when the star first appeared, so he's trying to pinpoint when the child was born, right? Then he told them, go to Bethlehem. You go to Bethlehem. <laughs> you search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Let me ask a question. You think Herod had any intention of going to worship that child? No, of course he didn't. Herod saw the child as a rival, as someone to be eliminated. The funny thing is, Herod, if it was that important, if this is, if this is what he thinks it is, why wouldn't he go? And, and the reason is because he would only go to eliminate the child. And it was easier for him instead to send soldiers there. More than likely, he sent mercenaries. Um, like I said, it's not a very big place. Historians will tell you that uh, to, to kill the, the boys two years and under meant the death of uh, less than 50, you know. Could have been a small number of boys uh, under two who lived in the area. So it wasn't that significant that these soldiers would go down and they would kill the young boys there in order to eliminate Herod's rival because that's all he's interested in. It's the only thing that matters to him. Herod's about his power, his, his own legacy, what he owns, what he controls, who he is. Like I said, because of it, the Jewish people hated Herod. They didn't like him at all. They detested Herod and never wanted Herod to be the one who ruled over them. So he doesn't go. I still think it's interesting that the uh, religious leaders, maybe because of their fear of Herod, they don't go. Um, maybe because they still just look at it as being insignificant. Maybe they were insulted that these wise men from a foreign land come and tell them about the star. Who, who knows what the reasons they don't go. But because they didn't go, they never meet, they never see um, the king who is born to be uh, the ruler of the world. Paul writes this to the Corinthians. Now he's, he's speaking not of the birth of Jesus, he's actually speaking of the cross of Jesus when he writes, but it still ties in because this Jesus who comes to be born actually comes to give his life as the lamb of God for our sins to rescue and to free us, which is why 2,000 years later, there's still people following him and trusting him and it's just growing and growing and growing. And, and it will until the day that, uh, that he closes that chapter of the story. So here's what, here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 20. He says, so where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? Man, a great question, isn't it? The, the important ones, where does this leave them? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. That means to them. Since God, in his wisdom, saw to it that the world would never know him 
through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. That's pretty small. That's pretty minor compared to the major things of this world. But that's the choice that God himself made to save us and to change us. Been to Bethlehem? Important place to go. I mean, not physically, I've been there, but in here, to the place that God has, has chosen, that small place to meet with you and to speak with you and to change your life. I put in your outline, what is the, what is the way to Bethlehem? That's, that's an important thing to think. How do, you, how do you get there? What's the way um, to Bethlehem? Well, it's, it's the smallest details that God decides to use that will have this incredible impact upon your life. It, it's not the big things that you think you're looking for. The biggest thing you're looking for comes in this small way, in this small package. Number two, to know which ones of those small things are the important ones, um, you have to learn to wait on God. That's what Bethlehem is about. They, they'd wanted a savior for a long time. Savior had never come. They thought the savior may never come. But he does come as they wait and they wait and they wait. And he arrives. Uh, the way to Bethlehem is the way that God himself chooses. And when he chooses it, what happens is our joy comes. We find what we're really looking for. What will really change our heart, what is significant to us. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. <laughs> it is. It's not what we think. I mean, listen, the celebration and all this stuff is wonderful. I was driving my grandson around uh, last night just looking at the lights down by the, the pavilion and the ice rink and all. We were looking, and, you know, they're wonderful. They're, they're fun. But that's something you see and it's gone. This is something that doesn't leave you. This is something that comes to live within you when Christ himself is born, not just switched on and switched off. It's not a lot of times the way we want it. We like the switch on, switch off. But God has other plans for what he wants for our lives. And when we find it, we realize that's what I was looking for. That's what I needed. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that uh, this is the final week for us to prepare and to celebrate Christmas, uh, the birth of your son into this world, a savior, a king when the world was confused about what a king would really look like. So many people didn't bother, even when they heard of this king being born, to go, Lord, help us that we wouldn't be like that. But we would wait and be patient to make the journey to Bethlehem, the place where you want us, filled with a lot of humility, a lot of awe at who you are and what you're capable of doing that, that is so far beyond what we're capable of doing. Father, we know that Bethlehem was your choice where your son would be born come to live, to grow up, to live a life that was sinless, not so that he could stand up and 
brag about his own righteousness, but instead so that he could offer it as a gift, a life given to pay for our sins, to give us a right standing with you that we could never have on our own, but he would give that as a gift, his grace to us. If you're here and you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, into that that place that is quiet, that is still, that may feel lonely in your life, that's where Jesus wants to be born. And that's where his birth will change you deep inside. You can say, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came. And you continue to come and be born in the lives of men and women who realize their need and recognize who you are, significance of what you did. So Lord, would you come in and live in my heart, my life, forgive me my sins. Show me the better way. Give me a a new hope, a new sense of what life means beyond the old way that I thought life would work so that I could live your way. Fill me with your spirit, a new joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.